Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hey, we're in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. So you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 7 and uh, trying to keep in, in keeping with coming up with a, with a title to my message. Um, basically, I, there's some things here that just kind of pop out here that I think are important news. I call it important news for the follower of Christ. And uh, really, there are some points that I want to bring up that I think are important for you and I as we uh, are ministering, as we are serving the Lord, as we are living our lives as Christians. There's some things here that I think there's some principles that we need to, that, that just come out of this story that I think will apply to us in our lives. So we'll be looking at those as we go through the story. But I want to back up just a moment into chapter 6. You don't need to turn there if you, well, if you're at chapter 7, you can just look to the left or, yeah, be to the left or turn a page, whatever, to the end of chapter 6. Because if you'll notice, the paragraph starts in chapter 6 and it goes into chapter 7. So to give us a little bit of continuity. Verse 28. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Remember this, he was the reluctant deliverer before and the God, you know, convinced him that he needed to go, that he was the man that God was raising up to go and speak to Pharaoh. And uh, here it says, Pharaoh, or Moses is like, you know, I just, I've got uncircumcised lips. Now, whether he means he had a speech impediment, that he had a difficulty speaking, or maybe he just lost his confidence from talking to sheep for 40 years, you know. Because in Acts chapter 7, we're told that, that Moses was mighty in word and deed. And so maybe he just lost all his confidence and, and uh, you know, just, just felt like flustered or whatever when he got in front of Pharaoh. He just didn't know what to do. So that's where we pick it up here in verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. This is a very good uh, explanation of what a prophet is. There were prophets all throughout the Old Testament. A prophet speaks for God to men. He, he, he's God's spokesperson. What he shares, if, if someone shares a word of prophecy, it's a word from God to us, to the church, to mankind. And so Moses, you know, he's just, he, for whatever reason, he feels like he can't speak effectively. And God says, that's not an issue, Moses. I'll tell you what to say. And, uh, you know, Jesus told the same thing to the disciples in, uh, well, not the same thing, but basically he was saying similar in Mark chapter 13, verse 11. He said he was telling the disciples, preparing them for after he ascended into heaven and they would become persecuted, they would be arrested, they would be brought before synagogues and rulers and leaders, which is exactly what happened. But in verse 11 of chapter 13 in Mark, Jesus said, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will say, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. How many of us lack confidence and we just don't feel like, you know, I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody and 
you get done and you're just like, man, I really messed that up. It'd be it'd be amazing if they if they you know came to the Lord and stuff. And we get all we get all flustered sometimes. I I know that's happened to me before. Um, but I want to encourage you this morning. God uses the weak. He uses those that are flustered. He he, he can minister through us. Um, in fact, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and 27. He said, For your, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now that means some are mighty, some are wise. So it's not knocking that. Um, but not all are called, or but not all mighty, noble, wise according to the flesh are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So feeling like you're incompetent or feeling like, man, I just don't, I just would blow it, so I'm not going to share the gospel because, you know, I, I just don't know if I can present it correctly. That's not an issue. Let God speak through you. Let the Holy Spirit minister through you. And so here's the very first bit of newsflash for each one of us this morning. God doesn't need your ability. He needs your availability. Let me say that again. God does not need your ability. He just needs your availability. There's a perfect example of that in the Old Testament in the book of Judges in chapter 7. It's the story of Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges that God rose, raised up to deliver the children of Israel during that period of the judges. And uh, they had an issue with the Midianites. The Midianites were enemies of Israel and they would come, they would cross the border into Israel and they would, uh, they would pillage uh, the land and they, they would take everything, they would take the, the crops and stuff and, and they were really a pain for the children of Israel. And uh, God raised up Gideon to fight the Midianites. And uh, so in the beginning of chapter 7 in Judges, Gideon, uh, after he's called by the Lord, he, he, he's, he spreads the word out to the children of Israel, hey, we're, I need an army to fight the Midianites. And uh, it turns out that 32,000 fighting men show up of all the different tribes of Israel to uh, come along, alongside Gideon to fight the Midianites. That's a pretty good sized army, 32,000 army men. But the Lord spoke to Gideon and said, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved me. God's basically saying, if you go in there with 32,000 and you win the battle, you're going to think that you, that you did it. You're going to take pride in your abilities. So God told Gideon, he said, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And so Gideon did that. He said, if any of you are afraid of fighting, you're worried, you've got a little bit of second thoughts, um, you can leave. And 22,000 left. So there was 10,000. Now, if you think about it, and I'm not a military, I mean, I was in the military, but I'm not a, a warrior or anything like that. But I can imagine if you had 32,000 and 22,000 were afraid of fighting, they probably wouldn't have been that useful anyways, right? So now you've got 10,000 guys that are committed. They're like, we don't care. We're going to go in this. We're going to fight. So I would imagine Gideon's probably like, okay, we got rid of all the, the guys that might be flaked out in battle. We've got the serious guys here. I think we can do this. Well... The Lord told Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. 
And so he tells, he tells them to drink water from the river. He says, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. In other words, the other guys, they just got down on their hands and knees and drinking. You know, the enemy is like, you know, their prime position to be attacked. But the other guys were careful, you know, and, and uh, we have a bird bath in front of our house. And it's funny, I, sometimes I sit out on our porch and I watch these birds land on the, on the bird bath. And those birds are smart, you know. They, they sit there and they take a drink and they look around, you know, take a drink and look around. And I mean, they're always moving like that. And, and that's kind of the principle here. So those that just, they, they just knelt down and brought water up to their mouths, the Lord says, those are the men. Well, there was only 300 of them that did that. So Gideon had to send all the rest of those away. And the Lord told Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. See, God doesn't call those that are available or call those that are, uh, he doesn't need your ability, he needs your availability. In fact, you may have heard this uh, phrase before, I know I've said it before, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. You know, as, as Luke was sharing these different ministry things, and, and there's even more than what he shared, but, but the stuff that he shared, you might think, well, I don't think I could do that. I, I don't think I've got the ability. You know what? Are you available? If, if you're available and you're willing, God will equip you. And so, in any event, the events surrounding the exodus of the children of Israel that we're going to start looking at here in chapter 7, there's an amazing similarity to the events of the Great Tribulation. And we just finished going through the book of Revelation a, uh, about, about a couple months ago. And uh, if you look at chapter 6 through 19 in Revelation, that describes the events of the Great Tribulation, which is known as the time of Jacob's trouble. That's when, just like in Exodus, God once more delivers the nation of Israel. Only in Exodus, they were in literal physical bondage. But in the tribulation, they'll be delivered from spiritual bondage uh, in Egypt. And Egypt is a, is a picture of the world. When you go through and you're studying the Bible, you're reading in, in, as we're going through Exodus, just remember that Egypt is a picture of the world. And so God also, notice that he appoints Moses and Aaron to be his spokesmen to Pharaoh and all Egypt. And again, there's amazing similarities because during the great tribulation in Revelation chapter 11, God again appoints two spokesmen to be his witnesses, to go to the world, to go speak before the Antichrist and the world and stuff. And, and a lot of people believe that one of them at least is Moses himself. The other one might possibly be Elijah. There, I know there's some other theories about who they are. We're not told who those two witnesses are, but, uh, but again, there's that similarity. Well, going back to the text there in verse 2, the Lord says, you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Does that kind of sit kind of hard with you? I mean, it's like, I will harden Pharaoh's heart? I mean, it, it sounds kind of unfair, doesn't, doesn't it? Listen. 
Pharaoh already had a hard heart. In chapter 1 of Exodus, he told his advisors, his, his, the leaders of Egypt, he says, let us deal shrewdly with the children of Israel. And he forced them to work as slaves. And the Bible says with rigor. And that word rigor, it's a noun, and it refers to ruthlessness, to cruelty. It refers to a manner in which something is carried out. In other words, Israel was made to labor without mercy, cruelly by Egypt. Pharaoh already had a hard heart. In Leviticus chapter 25, later on, when the children of Israel are are in the promised land, God warns Israel in Leviticus 25 not to force uh, slaves to labor with rigor, not to, not to be cruel, but to, but to you know, be merciful. But that wasn't Pharaoh. Pharaoh was ruthless and cruel. Pharaoh was the one who told the Hebrew midwives to murder any male Israelite babies that were born. Pharaoh was the one who instructed his people to drown all the male Israelite children three years old and under uh, in the Nile River. So Pharaoh's heart was already hard. But God just hardened, hardened Pharaoh's heart with regard to letting the children of Israel leave Egypt so that he'd be glorified in the eyes of Egypt when they did leave. God's basically just confirming that hardness that's already in in Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh wasn't like this super nice guy and you know God just says I'm going to make you, you know, I'm going to give you a hard heart and and he changed he had a hard heart. No, he had a hard heart. God just established it within Pharaoh. But why would he do that? Why would God do that to anybody? Well, verse 5 tells us, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. God wanted to be glorified. He wanted the Egyptians, and, and in our case, it would be the world to know that he is the Lord. During the Great Tribulation, again, there's some similarities again. There's three angels. We, we, we talked about that. Three angels flying through heaven. They're, during, the, during God's wrath being poured out, they're proclaiming the gospel. They're urging the inhabitants of the world to give glory to God. Um, so there's a lot of similarity. We'll be bringing some more out here. But it's interesting. We're just going to start talking about the plagues here, beginning in, in Exodus chapter 7. And uh, arrow, uh, arrow, Aaron's rod, you know, when he, when he laid down his rod and it turned into a dodge, I mean, it turned into a viper, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean that. When Aaron's rod, when he laid it down and it turned into a serpent or a snake, that was a sign. Okay, that was a sign of Moses and Aaron's credentials. We'll talk about that. It wasn't a plague. The commencement, sometimes people say there's 10 plagues, and you know I maybe don't necessarily agree with that. The death of the firstborn at the end is a commencement of God's judgment. It's really in a category all of its own. So in between that sign and in between that commencement, there are nine plagues. And it's interesting, they're divided up in sections of three. Um, each set of three plagues, the first two plagues, God warns Pharaoh and warns the Egyptians. And then the third plague of each, each set of three, then there's no warning, just, just the plague happens. Very interesting. The other thing that's very interesting is that the first three plagues, and I was looking at it, possibly the sixth plague, uh, affected the children of Israel right along with the Egyptians. 
They went through those plagues, just like the Egyptians did. Uh, the, when the water turned to blood, they were affected by that. The frogs, the lice, and then possibly the locusts in, in uh, the sixth plague. The children of Israel went through. The other ones were told specifically that it didn't affect the children of Israel or the, didn't affect the land of Goshen. But those ones, they went through those plagues. During the Great Tribulation, Israel will be affected by some of God's judgments, but of course not all of them. But just like in Exodus, during the Great Tribulation, God's going to make a distinction between his people Israel, through the nation of Israel, and the world. And here in Exodus, God's making, going to make a distinction between uh, his people, the children of Israel, and Egypt. So, you know, I was thinking about this. Why does God go through all this? Why doesn't God just, you know, bombard all the plagues at once and then that same night let the children of Israel leave? And I think the reason, of course, I'm not God, so I can't speak exactly for him, but I think one of the things is he's patient. We know that from Scripture. He's giving an opportunity for them to repent. He keeps, keeps warning Pharaoh. He keeps giving him an opportunity to repent. And he's also allowing the Pharaoh and the Egyptians to see that distinction between them and the children of Israel. And you might be here thinking, man, I just don't like the idea that God allows his people to suffer. Well, again, here's some more important news for the follower of Christ. The universe doesn't revolve around me or you. And that might be shocking news to some of us. Did you hear just, just the other day, the, uh, uh, this lady, this girl, was planning her wedding. I guess it was like a $60,000 wedding. And so apparently she was having trouble getting funding for it or money for it. She couldn't save up enough. So she started a GoFundMe pro, you know, program thing. And uh, she just figured if every guest would pay $1,500 to come to my wedding, then, uh, you know, they'll be invited. Otherwise, they're not invited. You have to pay 1500 to go. And I think she got, I don't know, I heard something like eight people or so that agreed to do it. So, <laughs> I'd like to find out who those eight people are. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's like, what? <laughs> she thinks the universe revolves around her. And the reality is, it doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around her. Listen, God had promised to deliver the children of Israel. And he's going to keep his word, but it's going to be in his timing and according to his will. And in the meantime, it's not just about the children of Israel. When we go through suffering, it's not just about us. God is also working in the lives of Egypt, the lives of the world around us, those that, are, those that see what we're going through. And you might say, why is God allowing me? Again, there's that me. Why, why me? Why am I going through this difficulty? Well, maybe, and I'm not saying definitely, but maybe, just maybe, God's using circumstances in my life and in your life for the benefit. So maybe it has very little to do with us and has more to do with those around us that are watching us. They're watching how we endure difficulties, hardships, and suffering. Because for you and I as believers... God has guaranteed our deliverance. Our salvation is guaranteed. We will be delivered. But in the meantime, maybe God is wanting to use my life to show Egypt, or your life, to show Egypt what a life of complete dependence and trust in God looks like, even in the face of difficulties, 
hardships and suffering. God wants to make a distinction because you know how 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 do you how do you respond when you're troubling or I mean when you're being when you're suffering? You go, yeah, but but why me? <laughs> I don't know the answer. And you know, to be honest with you, we may never know the answer this side of eternity. But are you okay with that? Are you okay with not knowing? Just remember, the universe doesn't revolve around me and it doesn't revolve around you. Your, de your deliverance is secured, but God's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And you and I are his instruments in ministering to this world around us. And it may include suffering. He may want us to go through things so that people can see how does a person trust God fully going through the midst of their suffering. Christians are not immune from suffering, but God wants to show the world that there's a distinction between the child of God and the world. What is that distinction? Paul described it in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. There's the distinction. We're hard-pressed, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. I don't know if you've been perplexed before. I've been perplexed many times but not in despair. I don't despair. I, I get perplexed sometimes, but I don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. You see, that's the distinction that God wants to show the world around us. When you and I come up against something you don't understand, fall back on what you do understand. I always, I always, I always try to remember that. I don't understand what's going on, but I, but I know this. First of all, I know that his presence is promised. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. His presence is promised. Not only that, his love for you and I is assured. It's one of the things I always try to tell the kids, you know, just that they, that's my prayer, that they know that God loves them. The Bible tells me so. Romans 8, 38, 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves you, even when you're going through the suffering. You go, why, why are you allowing me to do this, Lord? He loves you. Remember that. And then finally, his deliverance is guaranteed. I like what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 9, and 10. He said, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should trust, uh, that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us, past tense, from so great a death, and does deliver us, present tense, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us in the future. Our deliverance is guaranteed. So if you're the, here this morning and, and maybe this is touching where you're going through, you're, you're going through a tough time right now and, and uh, whatever it is, I want to share this last scripture with you. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator because he loves you. He loves you. And he has a plan and a purpose even in, even in the suffering that we go through. Well back to our story. Exodus 7 verse 6. So God tells Pharaoh or tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. 
Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. And here's the next news flash for the follower of Christ. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. Now I know some of us are getting to that age where retirement is looking really tempting. Maybe some of you, I don't know if any of you are retired here this morning, but I know we have some in our fellowship that are retired at this point. And retirement's not a bad thing, okay? We're not knocking retirement. I wish I could retire. I don't know that I'll ever retire. But listen, when it comes to your relationship with the Lord, when it comes to being used by the Lord, there is no retirement. There is no retirement. The, we're not going to get to it this morning, obviously, but Later on, when the children of Israel are, are going through the wilderness and they're approaching the promised land, they're approaching Canaan, Moses is going to send 12 spies into the promised land to check it out, see what's going on. And uh, they're all 12 going to come back. Ten of them are going to go, man, Canaan is great. I mean, the fruit, you should see the grapes. They were size of watermelons, you know. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. But, but there's also giants in the land. And, man, we look like grasshoppers compared to those guys. And so they started, you know, freaking out the children of Israel. Well, two of the ten, Joshua and Caleb, said, yeah, that's true. There are giants in the land, but you know what? God's promised us to victory. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And uh, it's amazing. Ten people were able to discourage two million people. Isn't that amazing? What, dis you know, speaking discouragement can do to people? Two, uh, ten people discouraged a whole nation from obeying God and going into the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb, they were faithful. And so once they get into the promised land, and before they even get in there, Moses says, when you get in the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, in fact, they're the only ones of that generation, they're the only ones of those spies that were allowed to go into the promised land. The rest had to die in the wilderness because they lacked the faith to go in there. And so Joshua and Caleb go in. Joshua, after Moses dies, of course, he's leading the children of Israel. And, uh, and Caleb comes up to him and goes, hey, remember what Moses said about me getting promised, you know, getting my own land and stuff? And Joshua's, yeah. Can you imagine? Now, if I was Caleb, I'd probably say, you know, give me a cabin by the base of Mount Hermon, you know, a nice stream or a lake there. I, I want a large porch and a rocking chair and a nice view of the mountain, and I'll be happy. I mean... But he didn't say that. This is what he said. Joshua 14, verse 10. And now behold, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. 85-year-old, give me the mountains. And not only because he liked the mountains, but he says there's giants there. You see, Caleb knew that giants were nothing against God and a life surrendered to God. And so he had no fear about that. But here he is. After 45 years, he's just as strong as he was in the beginning. And he's not like, you know, I want to retire by Mount Mount Home. No, I'm going to go in there and give me the land where the giants are. Because God's going to give me the victory. I know it. You see, there's a danger 
in retiring from the kingdom of God and kind of laying back and stuff. It happens. It happened to King Solomon, the wisest man in the world. In Kings, uh, 1 Kings 11.4, it tells us, For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. What caused him to later on flake out the way he did? It was compromise in his early years. He compromised. They weren't supposed to marry many, many wives. He had many, many wives, and they were foreign wives, and they later on, they, they, uh, they got him to turn his heart after, other, after their idols. So if you want to be like Caleb, and I always look at this and go, man, I want to be like Caleb. And I, want to, I, want to be, I want to have my strength and my vitality serving the Lord up until the moment either he comes back for the church and I'm raptured, or if, if I take my last breath and I get this, you know, get a heart attack or whatever, I, I hope I'm just as faithful in serving the Lord as I was when I was younger, when I was on fire for the Lord. I want to keep that fire burning. Well, how do you do that? Get rid of the compromise now. Get rid of it now. Don't wait till later. And set your heart to follow the Lord now. Start doing it now. Develop that in your life now. And you'll, it'll carry you through into your latter years. So, verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Listen, Pharaoh in those days, they considered themselves deity. They considered themselves God. And so here comes these two shepherds, and we know earlier in the book of Exodus that shepherds were an abomination to the, to the Egyptians. They, they, it was like the lowest of the lowest class of people. So here comes these two shepherds. One's a has-been, prince of Egypt, washed up. The guy's been out in the desert with sheep for 40 years. And a slave, his older brother, is even older than he is, it's a slave. And here they come in, and they're not even making a request of mighty King Pharaoh. They're making a demand. How dare they? Who are they? What kind of credentials, you know, what kind of credentials do they speak of? They're, they come in making a demand in behalf of the God of the slaves? Well, prove your credentials to me. That's basically what Pharaoh is saying there. Show us a sign for yourselves. And so they do. Moses instructs Aaron to stick down his rod. Aaron puts his rod on the ground. It turns into a snake. And, uh, you know, Pharaoh's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. He looks at the, he looks at the two, uh, the magicians, which we find out in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. They're actually named in the Bible, Janus and Jambres. He calls out, and they do the same thing. It says, but Pharaoh called, also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. You know, can our Egyptian gods do the same thing as the god of the Hebrews? Yeah with their enchantments, with the occult, with, with satanic power. But at the end, Aaron's rod swallows up all their, Aaron's snake, I guess, or rod, swallowed up all their snakes or rods, however you want to describe it. So here's another news flash 
for the follower of Christ. Miraculous signs and wonders are not necessarily from the Lord. Don't get fooled by just miracles. Somebody, you know, don't, don't, don't get deceived. In fact, during the Great Tribulation, again, there's, there's just amazing parallels. The Antichrist and the false prophet, and I think they're pictured here in Janus and Jambres, they'll be able to perform miracles, but the source of their power is not the Lord. The source of their power is Satan. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he says, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, all power, signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's going to be great deception. There's going to be miraculous things that take place. You know, it's amazing today, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever watched any of those television shows like America's Got Talent. And they got, sometimes they have magicians on there and you're like, how did that guy do it? You know, and you got to wonder. You got to wonder if, you know, it's amazing, you know, wonder if what's the source behind that. But just because someone works a miracle doesn't mean that they've been sent by God. And I know there's people that get, they, they fall into that. Oh, wow. You know, they, they, they proclaim something and it's like, and it's backed up by a miracle. Well, then it's got to be got to be from the Lord. Listen, you've got to ask yourself a few questions. First of all, who's being glorified? Who's being glorified? Secondly, what's the purpose? What's the purpose behind the miracle? And finally, is it in keeping with God's written revelation? Does it violate, does it go against scriptures? If it goes against scripture, I don't care what it is or who says it, stay away from it. It's not from the Lord. So, the Egyptians, the, the magicians, they, they make their rods turn into snakes. Mo, you know, at that point when, when Aaron's rod swallowed up the others, it should have like sent a warning flag. Okay, the God of Aaron and Moses is definitely bigger than the God of these magicians. But it says in verse 13, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. During the Great Tribulation, men like Pharaoh are going to harden their hearts. It's interesting, as we went through the, the, the different things that happened, the different judgments in the book of Revelation, uh, in the beginning of the, or the tribulation, um, some of the judgments, like water turning to blood, is the same thing that happens in, in, in the great tribulation. At first, it's a third of the waters, a third of, the, a third of that gets destroyed. And, and we talked about that when we were going through Revelation. The reason why is because God's still giving people an opportunity to repent. He's still giving them an opportunity to repent. But towards the end of the Great Tribulation, then it's like all the waters are turned to blood. You know, all the ships are destroyed. You know, uh, and then in Revelation 9, verse 20, it says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, speaking of the Great Tribulation, did not repent of the work of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Their hearts are hardened. And God's just establishing it. God's just proving that their hearts are hardened during the Great Tribulation, just as he's doing right now in Exodus with Pharaoh. Verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, 
Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when he goes out to the water, you shall, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood." And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Now, why did Pharaoh go down to the river? Notice God says, hey, Pharaoh's going down to the river in the morning. I want you to meet him there and tell him this. I did a little bit of research, and I came across a website, a Torah website, which is an Old Testament you know, Hebrew website. And there's these Jewish rabbis that have all these different opinions. And one of them was that Pharaoh went to worship because the, they worshiped the Nile River. They worshiped gods around that, had, uh, that were associated with the Nile River. Uh, and uh, one, one of the rabbis said, well, they went down, he went down to the worship. And, uh, and that's why God told Pharaoh to meet him or told Moses to meet him there. Um, another one, they had another, so this, that was one rabbi. Then another rabbi said, no, 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 that's not the case because the, they did the worship up in the temples. He just went down to the river to relieve himself. That was one of the, one of the rabbis. And another rabbi said, no, 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 he didn't do either of those. He went down to check the level of the river because it was getting to the towards flood stage. So he was checking the river. And there was all these different opinions. And there's one thing that I discovered if there's four rabbis, there's five opinions. <laughs> I just figured that out. I don't know why he went down to the river. I was trying to figure that out. I'm not sure why. But in any event, this is the first miracle of the set of three, of the first of the, of the first set, I should say. First miracle of the first set of three. And this is one of the ones where the Lord sends Moses and Aaron to warn Pharaoh first. Also, this is one that's not only going to affect the Egyptians, but the children of Israel as well. One thing to remember, I, want, I just want to make this clear. You know, we're reading a story, but it's not just a story. There were people that actually endured this. There are people that lived, these are real events. Their names weren't even changed to protect the innocent, but they, they're real events. They went through this. People went through this. Remember that. Think about that when, when we read about this stuff. Verse 19, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your rod and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over, and over all the pools of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, <clears throat> in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. These plagues that we're going to be studying, of course we're looking at this first one this morning, they were not randomly chosen by God. Each plague is going to directly challenge the pantheon of idols or false gods, the little g, that the children, or excuse me, that the Egyptians worshipped. They had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. And each of these plagues is going to be a direct confrontation against the power of these so-called gods. 
all of these plagues also are going to answer Pharaoh's question. Remember, he said, who's the Lord, you know, that I should obey, obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Well, God's going to answer that question. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of the children of Israel, and he's El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. So this first plague here, the Nile River turns to blood. And as I mentioned earlier, the Nile River was worshipped, but not only was the river itself worshipped, but there were many gods that were associated with the river. One of them, and I'm just going to bring up a couple of them, one of them was a, a, was a god by the name of Knum, Knum. And he was the guardian of the Nile. That's an image of him there that I pulled off the internet. Um, he was the guardian of the Nile, the protector of the Nile. Well, obviously he was unable to protect the Nile against the Lord God of Israel. The next god was a god by the name of Happy, H-A-P-I. He was the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. And so, and there's two of them, and I guess one was, they, they were like, dual deities or whatever they one god apparently but one was southern nile and one was northern nile i guess but anyways um he was the god of the annual flooding of the nile and so when the when the nile river would flood you know annually it would deposit all this rich silt uh, along the banks of the river and that would allow the egyptian was fertile and they would allow the egyptians to grow crops so they were worshiped this god of the flooding this happy uh, the God named Happy. One of his titles is the Lord of the fish and birds of the marshes. And notice specifically, all the fish died. In fact, later on in Numbers 11, 5, when the children of Israel, they're going through the wilderness and they're getting tired of eating manna. And they, and they basically say, we remember the fish that we ate freely in Egypt. And there was a lot of fish. They got a lot of, a lot of their foods and a lot of what Egypt was and got was based on the Nile River. And here, the Nile Rivers turned to blood. I guess happy is not too happy right now. <laughs> he wasn't able to protect the fish from the Lord God of Israel. And again, I mentioned earlier during the Great Tribulation, I, I don't know if I'm going to read these scriptures, but... Um, the, the rivers and the waters and the springs, they're all going to be turned to blood during the Great Tribulation as well. But we read something interesting in Revelation 16, verses 5 and 6. And I, I, You don't need to turn there. Well, you can if you want, but um, after all the waters during the Great Tribulation turned to blood, it says, John's watching this, and he says, And I heard the angel of the waters... His name's not happy, by the way. Um, I heard the angels of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, who was, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. One of the reasons why God's going to allow uh, the waters of the earth to turn to blood is to judge men because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. In other words, they're bloodthirsty, Give them blood to drink. Well, likewise for Egypt in Exodus chapter 7. This is also a judgment against murders of all those Hebrew baby boys that were murdered. They're bloodthirsty. We're going to give them blood to drink. You see, no one's murder will go unaccounted for. You know, people may literally get away with murder in this life, but eventually they don't get away with it. Not when they come to the great white throne judgment it'll be addressed. So verse 22, 
Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, uh, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by all this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Picture this scene, okay? All the water of the Nile River is turned to blood. All the water that they had previously drawn out of the Nile River that's stored in cisterns or in buckets or in, or in vessels and in homes or wherever they stored them for different purposes, that's all turned to blood. There's dead fish everywhere. There's probably not, if there's blood in the water, there's probably, there's no, probably no more oxygen in the water. So everything's dying and stinking. It's just, it's a stench. And the only way that the Egyptians can get fresh water is to dig deep into the sand and hope that they can get some fresh water that's percolated through the sand. And no more has, it doesn't have any blood in it anymore. It's fresh. That's the only way to get it. So evidently, somebody did that and got some water. And uh, these Egyptians, these magicians, Janus and Jambres, they get a brilliant idea. That fresh water, hey, we can turn it to blood too. Wow, that's cool. That's really smart, guys. They're only fresh water and they're turning it to blood. <laughs> this, is, this is another news flash. Satan can duplicate some of God's signs and wonders. But whenever they do, or even when they can, I should say, it's never a good thing. It's never a good thing. Instead of making things better or alleviating suffering, they only make matters worse because it's not within them to do good. You look at the, 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 the wonders and things that, that, that happen that, are, that have, you question if they've got occultic uh, sources, if there's not good things, they're not beneficial, they're not, they're not you know, blessing someone. It's always something dark and something like, whoa, that's really, you know, wow, I can't believe somebody did that. It's not within them to do good. And Satan can duplicate, and he will in the Great Tribulation, but it's not going to be a good thing whenever they do. So, going back to this, an old commentator said this, and I, I don't remember which one it was because I have several commentaries, but I like what he said. This Red River proved a direful omen of the ruin of Pharaoh and all his forces in the Red Sea. I thought, well, that's true, you know? This should have proved a warning to Pharaoh because later on they're going to they're gonna die, their blood's going to be shed, so to speak, in the, in the Red Sea. For the world today, look at what happened in Egypt. Again, there's all these similarities to the Great Tribulation. So if a person was smart, they'd get into their Bible, read what happened, and see that, you know, hey, there's, this, is, this is real. And then they would heed God's warning. Um, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, speaking about the children of Israel and their, their wanderings through the wilderness and all the things that happened. He said, now all these happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we can be warned by Scripture, but but that word admonition is the word neuthesia, and uh, it doesn't mean this, it, it means any word of either encouragement or reproof, which leads to correct behavior. Why do I bring that up? 
Because, you know, we can read some of these passages and go, well, I don't want to have a hard heart. You know, we can be warned by these scriptures. But I also want to encourage you that you can also be encouraged by these scriptures. You know, these stories. Look at the children of Israel. God delivered them. God, God, God led them through. Even they had to endure some of the difficulties and God was still with them. So be encouraged or be warned, depending on where you're at, where your heart's at at the point. And so we end this chapter, it says, on seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. So in other words, God didn't dump everything at once. He, he prolonged it. Why? Because he wants to make it suffering really bad? No, because he's giving them an opportunity to repent. I want to close with this last point this morning. You know, Moses, he's known by Jews and Christians alike as the lawgiver. Right? Moses is the lawgiver. In fact, Jesus refers to Moses and the prophets. And when he's referring to Moses and prophets, when he says Moses, he's referring to the five books, the five first five Old Testament books. We know that as a Pentateuch. That was the books of the law, where the law was given to the children of Israel. The prophets would be the major and minor books, or major and minor prophet, prophecy books in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So Moses is equated with the law. Do you guys remember when the law was given? Remember when, well, we'll get to it, obviously, but the children of Israel, when they went on Mount Sinai and God wrote uh, the Ten Commandments with his finger on tablets of stone, gave it, to, gave it to Moses to bring down to the children of Israel. While Moses was up on the mountain, the ch children of Israel were like, where's Moses? We haven't seen him for 40 days. You know, maybe something happened to him. We need a God to worship. And so Aaron takes all their gold and jewelry and stuff and melts it down and forms it into a golden calf. You guys know the story. Moses comes down. That day when the law was given, 3,000 men were killed. 3,000 died when the law was given. Now, fast forward to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is actually a feast that commemorates the giving of the law. And when the Holy Spirit descended on those 120 disciples that were gathered in that upper room, on that day, 3,000 men were, 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom. What am I, what's my point? John 1 verse 17. For the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the law brings death. Jesus gives life. In fact, joyful, abundant life. It's interesting. Moses' first miracle, this first plague here, was turning life-giving, life-sustaining water into blood. In other words, death. That was his first miracle. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, into joy. It winds, it winds a picture of joy in the Bible. So we've been saved. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been saved by grace alone, right? Through faith, the Bible tells us. It's grace alone. And for you and I as believers, our goal is to be like Jesus. That's my goal. I'm, 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 I'm trusting that's your goal too. I want to be just like Jesus in all respects. Please listen, Jesus brings life abundant life and joy do I bring joy or do I bring the law do I bring death do I do I do I do I bring to have this deadening effect on the people that I encounter or do they see a distinction 
Do they, do they sense, I mean, there's something different about you. And you're always joyful. And you, you extend grace. You see, that's so important. The law brings death, but Jesus brings wine, brings life, brings joy. Do we extend grace to others like we have had grace extended to us? I cry out for mercy all the time. Lord, have mercy on me. But when someone does something wrong to me or they do something that I don't think is right, <laughs> don't have mercy on them. Wow. That's not the Lord. That's not the Lord at all. Or do we bring judgmental law? Do we have a deadening effect when we show up? It's like, oh, there's that person again. Here he goes. Here we go again. Or do we bring that joy? I hope that we bring that joy. I know when people come and visit our church, I've, people have said that. There, there's joy here. They, they, they go, yeah, the preaching's, we can, we can do without the preaching, you know. Music's okay, the preaching's kind of bad. But there's joy in this. They're friendly people. They love, I'm just joking around. But I have been told that, that people feel that, that there's, there's a love here. And, and so it's my prayer for all of us that that would be how, what we carry out into our week, into our families, into our relationships, our workplaces, schools, wherever, wherever we're at that we would bring that joy instead of that deadening effect of the law. All right. Um, we'll have the worship team coming up here. Joel, I got a special request from you. After, after this last worship song, can you bring up the last slide? Okay, thank you. I forgot to tell him that ahead of time. Joel's such a good guy, man. He's like, he's just, I like Joel. <laughs> but I like Jesus better, sorry, Joel. <laughs> Hey, let's go, Lord, in prayer, and uh, and then we're going to have communion this morning. And uh, what we'll do is, as soon as the worship team starts leading in worship, at that point, please come on up and uh, grab a, a cracker and a cup of juice and bring it back to your chair, and we'll all partake together this morning as one body. Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning. Lord, I thank you for the teaching of your word. Lord, those points that we brought up this morning, Lord, there are things that we just, maybe maybe this, is no, this isn't new news. Lord, we've known all these things, but Lord, I think sometimes we need to be reminded of these things. Lord, I pray that, uh, uh, Lord, as we go through our life, we, we go through suffering, and we all do, none of us are immune from it, Lord, that we would remember those things that you've promised, Lord, that you'll be with us in the suffering, Lord, that... Uh, uh, that our deliverance is secured and that you love us and that Lord we could fall back on that Lord I pray that we as individuals would have that joy that that uh, we bring to the world around us Lord that our lives would show a distinction and that uh, it would be a distinction that actually draws people to you Lord God and not drives them away but that Lord uh, they would want what we have and that is a relationship with you, Lord Jesus. So I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.